If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you have your own company, you have to think about the things that you don't always have to think about. So having, you know, a good amount of money set aside for you for that rainy day, as they call it. The unknown, you know, the unknown of are you going to get it customers? Are you going to get enough paying customers? How long will this take you to scale? You know, how scrappy do you have to get? <laughs> Just a lot of fears. Will people take you seriously? Will you be able to raise money or not? I would say there's just a lot of fear of the unknown of what could go wrong, but then also being optimistic enough to still move forward. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Welcome back to another episode of the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. I'm your host. My name is Tyler Martin. Thanks so much for being here. My goal for this show is to help business owners and entrepreneurs like you scale and grow their business. I truly believe business owners are often just a couple puzzle pieces away from building the business of their dreams. Today's topic is around bootstrapping. Many times, business owners are cash-strapped and have to navigate the waters of growing a business while managing cash closely. Well, guess what? We have a guest that will share her real-world experiences on this topic. I'm happy to introduce you to Goulet Sheikh. Goulet is a healthcare technology strategist and a successful entrepreneur. She found a health tech company, scaled it by a 1,000%, and exited it after seven years of running it. She was interviewed by Melinda Gates as one of the few health tech startup owners that raised over $2 million in capital in the Midwest. According to Goulet, successful entrepreneurs always go the extra mile. If you want your company to thrive, you need to put in extra effort into everything you do. In this episode, we talk about dealing with self-doubt and the fear of the unknown as an entrepreneur, the pros and the cons of bootstrapping a business, the importance of relying on data when making business decisions. And finally, why you need to go the extra mile to thrive in business. Goulet is an inspiring entrepreneur and just a fantastic guest. Let's start our conversation with her. Hey, Goulet, thanks so much for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to talk with you. You've got some some really cool stories to share with the audience. Before I, I sometimes I get ahead of myself, so before I do that, I'd love to talk a little bit about. Can you tell us about you and what you do and, and what got you here today? 
Sure. Yeah. I've been in technology for about 23 years. I started off as a programmer and I basically worked my way through different strategic roles in my career. In 2014, I decided to take a big step and step away from corporate and move into the entrepreneurial side of things. And so I developed a software for electronic prescribing for telehealth customers. We were targeting them specifically, but we worked with other clinicians as well. Yeah. And so that path led me towards learning about out-of-pocket cost issues for patients, as well as artificial intelligence and predictive analytics. And that's kind of what I focus on now today in my career. Yeah, very cool. So first thing I want to ask you, when you make that transition from being a corporate person to having your own business and kind of following your dream, what's that like emotionally? Like, what, do you remember some of that transition and that questioning of, should I do it? Or is it the right thing for me? What was that like? Yeah, it was scary. I will be honest because I am, although I always had an entrepreneurial mind in my corporate setting, I always had the leverage of a paycheck and the stability of, you know, being able to go into work and, and, you know, focusing on my skills rather than not focusing on or like growing a company. And I was always very focused on innovation as well. But when you have your own company, you have to think about the things that you don't always have to think about. So having, you know, a good amount of money set aside for you for that rainy day, as they call it, the unknown, you know, the unknown of, are you going to get it? customers? Are you going to get enough paying customers? How long will this take you to scale? You know, how scrappy do you have to get? (laughs) Just a lot of fears. Will people take you seriously? Will you be able to raise money or not? I would say there's just a lot of fear of the unknown of what could go wrong, but then also being optimistic enough to still move forward. Yeah. Very cool. So before I get into the business side of things. Like I want to just talk about telemedicine in general because mm-hmm. we had our, our first meeting where we had a little chat about it and you really kind of opened my mind to it. What was the problem you guys were trying to solve? Well, so this is in 2014. So, you know, now it's been whatever, nine uh, years ago or so, almost nine years. And uh, what the opportunity I saw at the time was I had met my business partner and we had just become friends And we were discussing, you know, what is going on in the world of healthcare and the direction that the world is heading towards is everything is going electronic. And so prescriptions are going electronic and uh, physicians, because they are so overworked and overburdened with scheduling and patients have a hard time getting in with their physicians on a regular basis, you know, telehealth was a promising option for people who had non-acute issues to be able to see their physician, get a prescription electronically, you know, just have like a a quick, quick check-in and then move on, right? You don't always have to go to the doctor, which is maybe going to take half your day and take that time off where it's just a 50 minute visit that can be done over a telehealth consult. So at the time, New York state had mandated that all prescriptions had to be electronic. And that was the big light bulb moment. We said, if New York has done this, the other states are going to follow. So we have to be ready. And there weren't a lot of licenses that were offered as a SaaS model, as a electronic prescription software option. So we looked into it. We thought this is definitely the way of the future. Physicians are going to need access to electronic prescribing. Let's jump on board and do it. So that year I basically quit my job 
and put aside a bit of money and basically ended up bootstrapping this idea. I love it. You know, the reason I wanted to talk about that is I love when people, business owners, founders, they see a hole in the marketplace and they just dive into it and go for it. And, and in your case, you ultimately led to an exit. So we'll get into that. I want to talk about first the bootstrapping part, because I think that's really interesting. When you had to bootstrap, talk about, help me understand, like, what were some of the limitations in having to start out? Now, bootstrapping means you were using your own funding. You didn't have anyone at that point, at least stepping in to help you with staffing, development, right. all the costs. What was the ramifications of that in your mind? So not as much as I had thought. <laughs> I had put aside quite a bit of money and I had just saved up from a couple of years of, of working, you know, in the corporate world. Sure. And I had, I had a bit of stash. So I, in my mind, I had put enough aside for six months for me to live off of. And then another chunk of money to build a software in a very scrappy way, you know, in healthcare. And so based on that, I thought, okay, well, I think I have enough. What we just need to do is we need to get a customer within six months, a paying customer, and then slowly then everything else will follow. So we did that and we did get a customer pretty quickly. Within eight months, we got our first paying customer and you know that was nice. However, healthcare is extremely expensive right. and it's very difficult to integrate. And as we realized the options that were available to us, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, from a compliance standpoint, audit standpoint, all of that cost money. Right. And there are requirements outside of your business, outside of building the software itself. So I hadn't accounted for all the extra regulations that I had to actually pay for that were required to go to market. So that cost a bit of money. Then there was the time that was that we needed to spend on integrating with a customer and supporting them for lack of knowledge. So what that means is I had to put aside development time of my developers to help the customer integrate because this was something that, you know, their developers had never done before. And, you know, the more time people spend, the more money they're spending. So you're going to scale faster if you do it in less time, obviously, and spend less time doing it. So we wanted to have experienced people doing it. And so therefore, we use our own developers to do things like that. But that cost us a lot more money then. And you probably, another byproduct, I would think, is you had a lot more control, too, of, of having your own developers. Yeah. From an audit standpoint, we had more control. Yeah. Our developers initially were in India. And so some of the challenges around that was the coding standards in India don't necessarily match up to the coding standards in the U.S. So I had to really oversee that in a very tight way to make sure that, you know, all security protocols were in place and they met, met U.S. standards. And, uh, and then healthcare standards, you know, were also an additional criteria as part of that too. Were there periods where you questioned your ability to be successful with your venture? Or was it always like, I know this will work? I mean, did you have dark days where it's like, I'm not sure? Every single day, every <laughs> single day, I questioned myself. Every single day, I went to bed at night thinking, what am I doing? Is this going to work? I have no idea what's going to happen. And every single day I woke up in the morning, I was like my feet on the ground. I'm just like, we're going to get this. You know, I know I'm doing like, there was just something inside of me where I was just pushing so hard. And I really felt that this was going to change the industry. I just didn't know what it was. Like I, I knew why I was doing what I was doing, but I didn't know how fast and if we would actually be successful or not. But then 
you know, then the day hits you hard and every day at night, I'm just like, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to make it. Right. That, that is just real and raw. I love that you're yeah. so honest about that because I think no matter what you're doing in the business world and running your own business, that self-doubt kicks in. I mean, sometimes it's more often than others, but it kicks in. And since nobody knows how the, you know, what's going to happen in the future, you're just always thinking is tomorrow the end or is, am I going in the wrong direction exactly. or, and it's just, it's really, uh, it's it can be humbling at times. And then when you get to the end, it's so rewarding. So, um, cool story. So yeah. in terms of the world of bootstrapping before you got funding, what do you think are some things that, are there things that limited you because of that bootstrapping when you reflect back on it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think at the time, what you know, I didn't know anything about it. And I tried to go to a lot of seminars and join a lot of entrepreneurial meetups and groups and everything. And I was trying to learn about the whole process of raising funds versus bootstrapping. And so I'll say like the one thing with bootstrapping is you're definitely limited in terms of how fast you can scale and what you can get done because you have to be extremely frugal, extremely scrappy and very resourceful and you have to know where to look. And that can take time to get that done. So it takes you longer to scale versus having the funds available to you and having you know a solid team in place. At the time when I was bootstrapping, the pros I was thinking was I have control over my company. So all the decisions I make from a technology standpoint, from a design standpoint, from customer uh, experience standpoint, I can control what that looks like. And I don't have outside you know, uh, forces telling me to do otherwise where I'm so close to the customer and their needs. So that was, I would say, probably what drove me in terms of my ambition to stay on the bootstrapping road. However, after year one, we were very limited in our funds. And, you know, I went almost, I would say three to four years without having a paycheck at all. Wow. So that also has its, you know, that creates its own limitations as well. Right. Right. So, yeah, I would say like looking back, I mean, I don't regret what I did because I learned from that experience, but bootstrapping just definitely has its limitations. Right. The true definition of sweat equity, three or four years without a paycheck. <laughs> mm -hmm. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. So was it hard to hire people when you're bootstrapping? Like, Because one, you have the cost of the person, obviously, that you're bringing on board that I'm sure you think about. But then also from their standpoint, does that make any difference from staff willing to kind of come along for the ride? Or did you find that to be a limitation? Yeah, I think well, so we we decided to go offshore in terms of our resources and building our team and so that helped us financially but you know every mistake will cost you money as well. So, you know, any mistake we made in terms of our offshore team and the decisions that they made, it cost us extra money to fix the problem. So that's something also I had to also look into in terms of planning things out correctly. Later on, we did hire a couple people onshore and that helped us tremendously, although it was a lot more costly, but the upfront cost was costly, but then the long-term cost was, was better because we were able to scale a bit faster. So there's a balance. But yeah, we started off offshoring. I spent a lot of time plotting and planning what had to be done so that we would eliminate or mitigate any uh, risks and issues in terms of mistakes, but you can't always anticipate what those mistakes are going to be, right? So, okay. So you start out bootstrapping and then at some point investors step in. Is that correct? There's different rounds. Was that still considered seed capital at that point? Or was that like a series A? 
We did a series A. So before we did our series A, we did do a couple seed rounds okay. with some smaller investors. We went through the friends and family route, got it, raised a bit of capital that way. When we were close to running out of that, then we went for a venture, a like a seed A round. Yeah. And so basically we we were basically over able to uh, raise over two million dollars. And then that gave us, yeah, that gave us enough leverage to really push hard and and drive the business home. Yeah, that's very cool. What were the ramifications once you take on an investor, especially like say at an A round or when it probably was a more established investment fund that invested in you? What were the ramifications of that? Does I imagine you now have more of a formal board? How did that affect your business and your decision making? So I would say, so this is, this may sound odd, but we were actually pretty lucky for the most part for the series A round money that we raised because they were very well, they understood the market pretty well. They've invested in other healthcare companies. Uh, They believed in us. And I would say the, probably the challenge was more so when we did the seed round and we had like smaller, like the friends and family round. So the friends and family round was anywhere between $10,000 to $50,000. And those were the folks that we had, although we didn't have a formal board with them, those are the folks that were constantly, you know, nagging about what's going on, (laughs) like every month, what is going on? Where's my money at? How are we growing? When we explain that, look, this is going to be at least a five-year turnaround period. You know, we're trying to scale, you know, we laid out the entire plan for them. So that was probably the harder part. The board was in a way really nice to have the formal board because I could actually now bring to the board all of the key metrics that we're working on, the successes we've had in the last month, and then the challenges we've had as well, and uh, present to them what I actually needed help with or more support in. So, you know, one month it may be, hey, look, I'm having challenges on my on my tech team. I need more time to get more resources to ramp up my tech team or you know this month like the marketing is down we need to ramp up marketing or we need to scale back marketing because we're not ready for the product to be out for this particular feature so it was it was nice to have a board where they provided you options and support and for the most part they let us at least for me on the tech side they did let me make majority of the decisions and they just leaned on me as for my expertise on what it is that I needed more and and where the risks risks were. That's very cool. Now, did you find, was your investment team, were they able to actually help you with resources? Like when you said you need technology help, were they actually able to point you in some directions? They have connections. Did that help you in any way towards some of your goals for the business? They had more connections when it came to potential customers. So they helped us more on the marketing side and, and and pushing out to customers. But the technology team, like I had already developed and built on my own. So I, I kind of had that under wraps, but you know, their, their role was to basically help us if we needed the help, but also to ensure that, you know, we're not losing money too fast, too soon either. And we've got our focus in the right places. Got it. Got it. So one thing I know is really important to you as being data-driven. Talk to me a little bit about that. Like, why is that important? Because I think this actually applies for the small business owner, as well as maybe a funded company that's hoping to go public or get acquired someday. Can you kind of talk through your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think every single aspect of your product, wherever you are, whether it is you are building your product or the end user and their experience of your product, you need to have data to rely on 
to make the right decision. So I'll give you an example, for example, for us. So for us, when we built our product, we didn't know, you know, what the market was going to look like. And in terms of the prescriptions, how many prescriptions were going to be written, how many were going to be sent out by the clinicians. And furthermore, I didn't know what the patients, you know, were going to do with the prescriptions. Were they going to pick them up or not? It wasn't even a thought. Like to me, it was doctors on average write these many prescriptions are going to do the same thing in a telehealth environment, completely off. Once we looked at the data, completely different writing standards when it came to telehealth versus in-person. Then from a prescription standpoint, I thought, okay, well, prescription is written. So, you know, 50,000 prescriptions. So 50,000 people are going to pick up their prescriptions. Wrong again. percent <laughs> of people don't pick up their prescriptions. So that data then helped us look into understanding why the patients weren't picking up their medications. And then we realized that actually this is a whole industry-wide problem where 50% of the population don't pick up their medications. And the majority of the reasons around that is because of cost. So they can't afford their prescriptions, whether it's their copay amounts or they just don't have insurance to cover it. So they just decide not to take their their medications and they then end up either in the ER or they end up with more severe issues where this could have been prevented. So that then led me into the predictive side and the out-of-pocket algorithm algorithm side where we built an algorithm to uh, determine what the out-of-pocket cost would be before the patient picked up their medication and then provided them with options to lower their cost. So it was just, it was all taking that data in and developing the right insights and understanding uh, industry-wide and comparing it to research and population health data to understand what was really going on. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. It was just, it was all taking that data in and developing the right insights and understanding uh, industry-wide and comparing it to research and population health data to understand what was really going on. Yeah. Wow. I'm always fascinated because you shared this with me the first time we spoke is just the percentage. Do you think it's still that high? the percentage of people that don't actually pick up their prescriptions because they can't afford it? Yeah, I think it's still high because wow. the the focus now is, the last couple of years, the focus has shifted to understanding price transparency across all, all levels and aspects of healthcare, not just on the prescription side itself. Whereas prior to, I think it was January 2020 is when the law came out where hospital systems have to disclose what the cost of each of the services would be. And, but prior to that, no one was required to present any of those numbers. And, you know, pharmacies were the same, were the same. So you would just not know, you know, two different pharmacies, the exact same pharmacy name across the street may have two different prices for their medication and the cost of their insurance, their out of pocket, their insurance may differ. So, Navigating that was so difficult and we're just at the, we're still at the beginning stages of understanding 
you know, what the impact has been on patients, because a lot of patients, you know, if they can't afford services in general, they will just not either go or they end up accruing a lot of debt because of that. And then they can't, you know, pay their bills. So there's a downstream effect. And I think, I think we're just now learning about how bad it is and how to address it. So it's going to take a while to address the entire problem. Right. Well, that's good to hear. So switching gears, I want to talk about exiting your business, the emotion Mm -hmm. around that, the amount of time it takes to actually finalize a deal. What was, can you kind of take us through that process? Like, what was it like? I mean, it's a win. It's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was tough, you know? So when I started my business, itself that year uh, after I had quit my job and and started my business and went went in all in, I found out about three months later that I was pregnant. Oh, wow. And so I, and I, in my mind, I thought, okay, this is fine. I'm just going to spend the next eight months really driving hard, getting uh, as far as I can in the business. And then I'll set it up for success. I'll take like maybe a couple months off to take care of my infant and then come back in and, and you know, everything will be good. Of course, things did not work out that way. <laughs> so it was it was a hard grind for a good seven, eight years. And then when it came to wrapping up, it was very mixed emotions because I basically developed this company as well as raised my child at the same time. And, you know, I still feel, I still strongly believe in the product that I created. I hope it's still helping people. I know it's in decent hands now and they're doing a pretty decent job. But yeah, like a lot of mixed emotions. I just remember that passion I felt every single morning getting up and trying to solve this problem and, you know, digging in deeper and deeper. And then once that was gone, I was like, oh, okay. Like, I guess, what do I do now next? So yeah, it was, it was very difficult. It was not an easy thing to let go of, but I felt good that I did create something that will continue to give back as opposed to it's not the end of that product. Yeah. Now, when you're going through that process of negotiation, did you just kind of have a slam dunk deal or was there a period of time where it's like, is this really going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Do I want to do it? Is the right dollar amounts and all that was all those moving variables? So was it kind of like an emotional roller coaster a little bit? Yeah, I would say I'm pretty level-headed for the most part. So I don't usually get too high and low, but it was stressful uh, needless to say, we had about four different people that were looking to buy into it and like negotiating the different deals. And in a way, at the time, I felt like a car salesman where, <laughs> or like a real estate, uh, like a realtor where, you know, you don't know, you're, you're trying to tell someone without saying it, you know, so one, one person was saying, well, I'm going to give you this amount. And then another investor was looking to put in a little bit less or a little bit more and so saying to them, so it's like, well, I have another deal on the table, you know, that's a bit higher. This is what they're looking at and negotiating those different terms and telling them that I kind of felt like I'm going to say, this is what probably car salesmen or real, you know, real estate brokers feel like where they're saying, oh, we have another deal on the table. And then the other person doesn't know if it's true or not, where they think maybe you're bluffing. And actually I'm not that great in terms of, you know, coming to the table and, you know, bluffing. So I'm just not a good poker player at all. So I was saying, no, 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 I, I'm being serious. We have another deal on the table. You know, here are some of the terms. This is what, you know, for us, we like. Here are some of the things that we like about yours. We need to kind of come to a compromise. And then sometimes we thought, okay, all deals may go. Right now we're lucky we have three or four deals on the table, 
but at some point someone's going to get frustrated and just walk away or all of them will walk away. Yeah. That's especially the larger of the two sales I had. The, the second one for me was like really emotional roller coaster. Like it was literally first due diligence meeting, kind of walking away, reflecting on it, thinking, oh, this will never happen. Then we would meet with someone else and the other one would continue to move forward. And it would just felt like, I don't know, it was, I guess I'm not quite as emotionally even keel as you. I, I felt like, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's your whole life. Yeah. You put a lot of time into it and it's like, literally could go from, you know, really having life-changing situation to not having it at that point, at least. But it's interesting to hear your perspective. Um, it's nice, definitely, when you have multiple parties interested. That definitely, I'm sure, made yeah. it a lot easier. Yeah, I think I would say the thing that probably put me at the most, the highest level of my stress was the due diligence that we had to spend on one of the deals. And that alone, that due diligence cost us $350,000. Wow. And at the 11th hour, they backed out. And that was probably the biggest hit that I had. It's it's like you kind of know as you're going in that it could fall apart. But that was the one deal we thought was going to go through because everything was matching up and lining up. And that was more of an emergent acquisition type opportunity that that was happening. And the other party that was going to be merged with us at the 11th hour, they said, no, we changed our mind. We're not going to do this. So wow. that was that was very, very difficult. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that's a lot of money too. That's a big investment to have yeah. Yeah, for a well, change especially of mind. for a startup. Yeah. 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 So, hey, I want to talk for our last area that I just love to talk about and uh, I want to make sure that I give it justice and I present it the right way. We talked a little bit about you know, you being a female engineer in a mostly male dominated category. And I just kind of wanted to get into like, what was that experience like for you? Like, were there times where you were like, kind of looked over and you felt like, you know, how you had to over overcome feeling, I don't want to say put down, but like, you're not equal. Can you, I'm not asking a great question, but hopefully I'm leading you correctly. Yeah, no, I understand what you mean. I think so. I never really considered myself different as being a female engineer or business owner. I just, I mean, I went in with, okay, this is my experience. This is my expertise. This is what I'm presenting. And I'm also, you know, very detailed focused and I plan a lot. So I, I put in a lot of effort into thinking things through. So when I present something, there's been a good amount of time that I've already thought about. So there were challenges though, uh, in terms of, you know, showing up at the table where I, felt and sensed that if I wasn't overprepared or if I didn't go the extra mile to prepare for either my board decks or my pitch information and and the background, that it would not be taken as seriously as we weren't as well prepared. Whereas, you know, sometimes we would go into a board meeting and it would be my male counterparts. And, you know, if we had like certain investors or certain board folks or like actually even customers, they would address my male counterparts and not even look at me or my male counterparts could say just very vague information, not be fully prepared where the customer would just say something that's like, okay, yeah, that's understandable. But I never had that leverage. So I never felt comfortable enough to say, well, I don't have the answers or I'm not prepared or I'll have to look into it. I always felt I had to have everything ready in front of me and go the extra mile. And there were times that I wasn't you know, there was an off question or there was something that you're not always going to be prepared or you're not going to know the, all the answers. But I always, especially during my entrepreneurship 
I think I really got that. I have to know everything in terms of my business and I have to have it in front of me to be able to answer those questions. Right. And I, I think when we talked the first time you talked about it, you think ultimately it made you a better leader and executive as much as it kind of sucked to not be, right. you know, necessarily be felt like you were being treated equally as your other peers. How is that? How does you come out feeling like you're maybe a better leader or executive from this experience? I think, and not just this experience, but I, I would say like for my entire corporate experience, I think okay. being a female, you don't realize that. I mean, some of these things where I say like I'm overprepared and, you know, uh, have more details available to me than not. It was through my corporate experience as well, but it was it was definitely the extra mile with the entrepreneurial side of things. And the way I think it's just, you're never going to go wrong in any situation if you are overprepared, right? So the more information you have, the more research you have done, it will show, even if you don't have to use that information, it will show in terms of your knowledge, your passion, your focus, your drive, your discipline, and understanding the the full picture of what you are coming forward with. So, you know, if I'm overprepared on something like versus, let's say my stats, you know, my technology and, and the investment and my team, and like, I have all the information, all the numbers in front of me, I may not be asked on one thing, but if I, you know, I'm asked on another thing at another meeting, I'll have already done that work prior. And then it's, it's really great in building the trust with your counterparts, as well as the people that you're, you know, presenting to. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I really do like that. In fact, didn't you say in your corp, when you were in your corporate world, there were like, you were the sole female in a team of 60. Is that correct? Yeah. When I first started. So when I first started my career, I was 21 years old. I was one of the youngest engineers on the team and the only female and the only minority as well. So, you know, it was 60 people on our team. I was the only female. And I think even in my graduating class in school, I was one of six women out of 300. So very few people, you know, were women. And now there's, now it's, I think it's the stats are close to half. So it's a really great place that we're in now, but this was not the case 23 years ago. So, you know, having that environment where you're surrounded by a male dominated team, you learned, you know, you learn how to present what is important, what they're looking for, and you kind of get molded in a certain way as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's cool to hear. I didn't realize that it's really closer to 50%. Now I knew that there was definitely some improvement, but if it's not almost equal, that's pretty cool that you were kind of the pioneer of, you know, those numbers. Now it's swung so much the other way. You're part of that improvement, I would like to think. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's pretty close to, last I looked, you know, we're, we were heading towards like 40% women. So cool. um, There's just a lot more women now that are coming into the tech space. Yeah, so cool. So, hey, I want to finish with one last question for you. It's about a life or a business tip. Is there something on top of your head that you could share with us that we could apply to either our business or our life and it hopefully make us better? Yeah, I would say just off the top of my head, you know, think big, Surround yourself with people who have achieved a lot more and then ask for help whenever you need it. I like that. Now, you didn't cheat, did you? Did you see this? Oh, I did not see that. <laughs> so so for the audience behind me, I have a sign that was covered by my head that said, think bigger. Yeah. <laughs> but I agree with you. So you and I are on the same page on this one. Think big. You know, you never can think too big. I think sometimes we limit ourselves by uh, just thinking we can't do it or, you know, this isn't right for us. And it, it's sad because I think sometimes people don't get the most out of what they can by just thinking bigger. Yes, I agree. 
Love it. So I will put this in the show notes. I'm going to put your LinkedIn profile. If people want to reach out with you, uh, reach out to you, connect with you, to chat with you, that's where I'll send them. And is there anything I left out or anything you want to chat, chat about before we wrapped up? You've been an awesome guest, by the way. Oh, no, thank you. This has been great. I appreciate it. Okay, well, cool. Well, hopefully in your next adventure, uh, you can come back on and we can have another chat. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, take care. Thanks. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast. Electric Cast.